Well, uh, my name is Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor here at Woodland Hills Church. And uh, we're going through the book of Luke these days. We take breaks to do series now and then, but we're uh, the last several years or decades we've been in the book of Luke. And we're up to Luke chapter 21. Uh, important passage, as uh, we'll see here in a moment. And I want to title this message, The Widow's Sacrifice. Because it's about a widow's sacrifice, yes. So here's what it says in Luke 21. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. The connotation is there than more than all the others combined. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. The widow's sacrifice. Pray with me here for a moment. Abba Father, your, your ways of thinking and your way of looking at the world is so very, very different from ours. But teach us your way. Teach us your way of thinking, your way of looking at things and evaluating things and God, transform us from the inside out and use this word to do that. And we're very aware, Lord, that uh, human words alone do nothing to build the kingdom unless your spirit is empowering them and infusing them. So we invite you, Holy Spirit, to come, be present here, help us to stay present, and give this word your authority to change us, transform the way we think about you, ourselves, the kingdom, and the world. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. So Jesus is in the temple. He's been in the temple now for about the last three months as we've been uh, on this passage. And he uh, cleansed the temple and ticked off all the religious authorities, though they were already mad at him, but he's kind of provoking them and they're plotting against him. And, and uh, then he's been teaching the people. He's been debating with the, these leaders. And then he's been talking to the people, giving some subversive teachings about these leaders, uh, warning them, uh, as Scott pointed out uh, so effectively last week, uh, warning about their style of leadership and how manipulative and abusive that is. And now what happens is as he's talking to these people, he stops and says he looks up. And he watches the people coming into the temple. And they're putting money in the temple treasury. Now this was just sort of a receptacle that people would put their contributions in when they walked into the temple. It was just sort of expected. And it wasn't like a private thing. It wasn't like these kind of boxes we have. We put money in an envelope so no one knows how much you gave. This was very open, very public. You put your offering in this, this container, large container, uh, that collected all the offerings as people were walking into the temple. So all the rich people are coming in and they're putting in their, you know, $100 bills and, and whatnot. And at some point, this widow comes walking into the temple. And she puts in two small copper coins. Now these are called leptas. And they're the smallest unit of currency in the ancient Jewish world, about worth a half a penny apiece. So she puts in about a, the equivalent of a penny. Widows in those days, as in many parts of the world yet today, there was no safety net in the first century. Uh, there was no, you know, nothing to take care of these folks. They were on their own. And generally speaking, when a woman in the ancient Jewish world didn't have a man to provide for her, she was very, very poor. Unless the man happened to be very wealthy and leave her this inheritance, 
Uh, and the rest of the family agreed that she should get it because otherwise it would go to the males. It was a very patriarchal, sexist uh, culture. Uh, but if that didn't happen, you're on the, uh, your own. And employment opportunities for women in the ancient world are scarce. So this widow is very, very poor. In fact, this is all the money she's got to live on, a penny. And she comes into the temple and the outer court where this uh, temple treasury was, and she puts in all she has, a penny. And Jesus says, this widow has given more than all the others. Uh, he doesn't say it's as though she put in more than all the others, or God appreciates it more than all the others. He says she actually, in some kind of weird kingdom sense, made a bigger contribution to the kingdom than all these others, all these others combined. Because they gave out of their wealth. Now the term there in Greek means surplus or abundance. Out of their extras, they gave a lot of money, but they really didn't need the money. They could get by without it. It was their extras, so they gave out of their wealth, their surplus. But she gave out of her survival fund. In fact, this is all she had. And the kingdom... Giving out of your survival fund is a greater contribution, not just in some poetic way or analogous way, but it really is, from God's perspective, a greater contribution, a greater sacrifice, and does more to advance the kingdom than all that rich money that was given out of surplus. It touches on what I might call the Calvary principle. And the Calvary principle is simply this. It's not about how much you give whether you're talking financially or of your life in any other area. It's not about how much you give that matters. It's about what it costs you to give it. What is the sacrifice behind it? Now, this text is usually used uh, to talk about financial stewardship. This is usually the sermon you preach when you're going to talk about you know, giving in the offering. And, and there's an appropriate place for that, for sure. When you consider that uh, the average American lives four times the global average, as we uh, talked a lot about during our Compassion by Command series this last fall, our standard of living for the average American is four times that of the global average. And when you consider that the average evangelical Christian in America uh, contributes 2.8% of their income to the church and to charities and things of that sort, which means we live off of 97.2% of our income, when you consider all of that, this is certainly a sermon worth giving, that uh, we're to give sacrificially, not, not, God, not our leftovers, not what's there at the end of the month and what we can afford to give, but we're supposed to be giving sacrificially. And that's certainly a message that uh, we American Christians need to hear, uh, to emulate the widow's way of giving rather than the rich people's way of giving. Uh, some preachers try to come at and address this issue of, of how Americans tend to steward their resources uh, by coming up with a law, a rule. It's kind of the American way. A, a law will solve all things. A rule will, 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 will change all behaviors. We put our trust in these kind of things. So here's the rule that's usually giving. If you're really a Christian, you'll give 10% the tithe. And uh, we make a law out of that, a doctrine out of that. And it's pretty convenient to do that, too. I mean, if I could preach that as a law right up there with the atonement and the trinity and the incarnation and other doctrines, that'd be, there's some advantage to that. But I'm not going to go there. 
Because tithing is not a New Testament doctrine. Um, Tithing was part of the uh, taxation system in the Old Testament. Uh, Ancient Jews had to give 27% of their income to the government. And 10% of that went to support the temple and the priesthood and all the other things. That was funded by the central government. Uh, and so it was an Old Testament form of taxation. But it's, it's not a doctrine in the New Testament. One time in the New Testament, Jesus mentions tithing in a positive way. But he does it in a context where he's talking to the Pharisees. And he's telling them, he's chastising them, saying, you know, you, 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 you tithe. You're very meticulous about that. But you ignore the weightier matters of the law, like living, uh, living mercifully and living justly. And it's good that you're tithe, he says, but you also ought to, even more importantly, live justly and live mercifully. But he says that to them because they're Jewish. And so, of course, he's saying, yes, pay your taxes. Uh, that, that You ought to do that, but don't put more emphasis on paying your taxes than you do on living mercifully and living justly. But to Gentiles, to Gentiles in the ancient world and yet today, Neither Jesus nor the New Testament anywhere uh, says that we're supposed to follow the Jewish system of paying taxes. We are supposed to pay taxes. Three times the New Testament says, pay your taxes. So my word to you this morning is, pay your taxes. Do not cheat on your taxes. Pay your taxes. You don't have to like the government uh, or anything like that, but because God tells us to pay your taxes. But that's very different from what they did in the Old Testament. Uh, the, The tithing thing just is not taught as a New Testament doctrine. The New Testament principle of giving is to give joyfully, uh, to give uh, according to as you are blessed, and to give sacrificially, which pertains to the passage we're looking at here this morning. But there's no percentage put on it. Now, I do think this, that uh, you find that the, the tithe, the 10% giving policy, even before the law, in uh, Genesis, uh, Abraham pays tithes to Melchizedek, and, and the law hasn't yet been given. So there is a pattern, one could argue there's a pattern set in Scripture about giving 10% to the work of the Lord and things of that sort. I consider that, therefore, to be a good benchmark kind of for how, how your priorities are, all other things being equal. Shelley and I, my wife and I, um, we look at, at the 10% thing as, as, as sort of a, a minimal benchmark for how we're doing. If we who live four times the standard of uh, people on, around the globe, if we can't give at least 10% of our income away, then it indicates that our priorities aren't right. In fact, if we can't do a good, percent, a good bit better than that, we, we, we think there's something skewed with our priorities, how we spend our resources. But it's not a law. It's not a law. In fact, it really violates, I believe, it violates the, 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 the spirit of the New Testament to make it into a law. Paul says specifically, don't give out of compulsion. Here's the percentage point that you have to give. It has to come freely from the spirit working in our life and changing us. And as the kingdom becomes more and more important to us and our priorities get, get readjusted, we find ourselves wanting to contribute more to the kingdom. But we completely undermine that, I believe, if we turn that into some kind of a law. Because the New Testament principle, the Calvary principle, is that it's not about how much you give. It's not even about what percentage you give. It's about, are you giving out of your surplus or are you giving out of your survival fund? Is your giving, is your way of living 
Calvary-like? Are you bleeding for other people and serving people? When I say bleeding, I just mean, is it costing you something to pour your life out financially and in time and energy and resources for the sake of the world? Because to the degree that we do that, we look like Jesus. To the degree that we don't do that, we don't look like Jesus. And the kingdom is all about looking like Jesus. The Calvary principle, it goes way beyond finances. It applies to every area of our life. Right from the get-go, the kingdom was established and is always advanced by bleeding, by sacrificing for others. Uh, out of a fullness of life that God gives us, we serve. Think about it. When Jesus first came into the world, uh, God established his kingdom, established his kingdom by becoming a human being, coming to the Virgin Mary, being conceived in this humble uh, young lady, being born in this world, and then dying on Calvary. God establishes his kingdom by uh, having this humble servant die what looks like an insignificant death, very common. You know, Romans routinely rounded up people and crucified them, just to make a point. So here's this insignificant person dying on an insignificant cross in an insignificant remote region of the Roman Empire, and God used that to establish his kingdom his reign in this world. Now at the same time, there's a lot of powerful and rich, influential people around that God did not use. Think about it. When Jesus is dying on the cross, there's Caesar. My, what power he has. Most powerful person in the world, head of the Roman Empire. He can snap his fingers and things get done. He's a mover and a shaker. He's an important person. You want something done, you get Caesar's ear and it gets done. With all that power, it's so impressive. And then you have the Roman Senate with all of their power. And then you have other power brokers like Herod and Pilate, the important people, the, the ones who really get things done. Impressive power and living in this incredible wealth. With all that wealth, they can do a lot of stuff, right? But God doesn't use them to establish his kingdom. He uses this insignificant, humble person dying in a remote region of the Roman Empire, letting others crucify him. When Jesus is dying, there's this powerful, powerful military. Oh, the Roman military was absolutely impressive, spread out throughout the Roman world. You want things done? Man, you use that military. They got muscle. They got, they, they got say-so. They can, they, they can make things happen. But when God comes into this world and establishes his kingdom, he doesn't use the military. And you've got a lot of impressive religious stuff as well. I mean, just in Judaism, you've got that magnificent temple. What a temple. And, and, and the priesthood that's there and, and these holy people with all of their religious stuff and you want something done, well, talk to the religious people, the power brokers of, 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 of the religion in the first century. But when God comes into the world and establishes his kingdom, he doesn't use the religion, he doesn't use the military, he doesn't use the government, and he doesn't use money. Because the kingdom isn't about money and the kingdom isn't about power and the kingdom isn't about laws and policies and the kingdom certainly isn't about the military and the kingdom certainly isn't about religion. The kingdom is about one thing and that is sacrifice. Living a sacrificial life that looks like Jesus Christ. And so when God himself offers up himself for a fallen race and makes that sacrifice, that is the kingdom because it looks like self-sacrificial love. And insofar as we look like that, we replicate that, we are advancing the kingdom. We're manifesting the character of God, which is what it means to manifest the reign of God, the kingdom of God. The kingdom is established and advanced always through self-sacrificial love 
and nothing but self-sacrificial love. That's why the widow's sacrifice was greater, did more to advance the kingdom than all the other gifts that were given out of surplus because she gave out of her survival fund. She bled when she gave that. The kingdom always looks like that. Now, that idea that what's really important is the sacrifice, not the amount or the power or anything of the sort, that idea is as countercultural as anything could possibly be. It is the opposite of the way we're conditioned and indoctrinated and brainwashed to think. We, we instinctively tend to equate uh, something's worth with its power to produce something. Uh, its, its ability to produce a measurable outcome. That's what's important. Why do we pay, well not we, but why do the Yankees? The Yankees, they pay uh, uh, Alex Rodriguez. How much does he make now? It's like $10 million a year. How much? $30 million. Okay, so why does he get $30 million a year? Uh, when the average baseball player gets a measly, what, half million dollars or something like that. Poor, those poor guys. I just, my heart breaks for them. Yeah. Um, well, it's because, obviously, Rodriguez, he produces more. He gets more hits. He gets on base more. He, he uh, you know, hits more home runs and, and scores more and other things as well, I imagine. So they give him a lot of money. Why? Because he produces more. That's what's important. How much does he produce? And the Yankees can afford to give him 30 million, so they do. In fact, I heard, I don't know if this is true or not, but I heard that he actually, when we were playing the Yankees, I heard that he made more than our entire infield. See, you know, and what a shock that they won. I mean, it's like, uh, Yankees have the best team that money can buy. And I'm, I also, I've heard that they're going after Joe Maurer because they can afford it. So you know, Twins can only afford to give him a measly 20 million or something. They're going to probably give him 40 million or something. Who knows? Ah, I don't like the Yankees. Quit getting me off track. I got to focus here. So, but that's the point. And Joe Maurer will end up getting a whole lot of money. Why? Because he produces more. He gets more hits. We instinctively think that way. Why do the CEOs of these major companies that failed the last couple of years get these tremendous bonuses even when the company's banks fail? Well, because, I've heard, uh, they do something that very few people can do. They're important. They're the movers, the shakers. They're the brightest minds. And, and, and it, it's, it's, it's a very rare person that can handle that kind of stress and, 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 and cause banks to fail that miserably, I guess. I don't know. But, but uh, sorry, sorry. But um, they make hundreds of times more than the average worker. Why? Because they're important. They can produce stuff. They're movers and shakers. We instinctively think that way. We would tend to think, I imagine, that Bill Gates, who's given $28 billion through his foundation to various charities and good causes, that that probably is more important than what Joe the plumber can do with his $10 a month uh, helping out some organization. Of course, with $28 billion, you can just do a whole lot more, obviously, and do a whole lot more good. So Bill Gates is a more important person than the rest of us Joe the plumber types who can just kind of give a little bit. But the kingdom says that that is, the kingdom principle, the Calvary principle says that is altogether the wrong way to think. Why is it that we pay such attention to when stars, celebrities, uh, make these contributions and, and, and get invested in various causes? Um, you know, uh, Sean Penn goes down to Katrina when Katrina hit. Uh, no, good doesn't go down. He went down to New Orleans after Katrina hit. 
and the cameras followed him everywhere because he was going to donate some of his own wealth uh, to rebuilding that, which is a wonderful thing. But uh, the cameras follow him all around. They don't follow other people all around. They follow him all around. And, and Angela Jolie and Brad Pitt, who I heard, they're having some trouble these days. But, but, when, but when they... That's what the tabloid said. I was just checking out. I saw their... Oh, no. Why anyone cares, I don't have a clue. That's a part of my brain that's missing. I, it's, I, I don't get that, but, but it, obviously people do care because they sell a lot of magazines. But when they adopt a new child, oh, it's fanfare. Everyone knows about it, you know, and the paparazzi are all over the place. Why? Because these are important people. They're wealthy people. They're famous people. And, and, and so they do more good in the world because they got more power and more money. And, and uh, when Oprah has her, her school in Africa and Bono with his red campaign and, and, and other stars, when they do big stuff, great stuff, the world knows about it. Why? Because they're important. Uh, they, with that money and that power, they can really change things. And I applaud all of that. I mean, I think it's great that the celebrities use some of their, their, their power and influence to do good in the world and set an example for others insofar as they do set an example for others because they set a lot of other kind of examples that I don't want anyone to follow. But anyways, I applaud all of that. But see, we have to, as kingdom people, always remember this. While that is good, wonderful, it does good in the world, the kingdom isn't about that. The kingdom isn't about something you can measure and quantify. Because in the kingdom, it's not the amount of money you give, and it's not the amount of time you invest, and it's not what you produce. It's what it costs you to do it that is all important. The kingdom advances only through bloodletting, only insofar as we bleed. Uh, for the cause of the kingdom and in service to others and in helping others, only insofar as we look like Jesus Christ uh, is the kingdom really being manifested in us and being built through us. It's counterintuitive. It's counter-rational. In fact, the New Testament itself calls it foolishness. It's going to look foolish to the world. It just violates common sense. But in fact, this is what the kingdom is, is built on. My concern is that, it's my observation, that the church is, at least in the West, especially in America, inebriated with this kind of thinking, this outcome production sort of thinking. Uh, we've just absorbed the world's way of thinking about things. Uh, we're indoctrinated in this uh, fashion, and we don't tend to confront that indoctrination very much. There's tons and tons of books and seminars out there uh, geared towards church leaders uh, that will instruct you how to do things, how to produce outcomes how to build a big church, how to increase your offering, how to market yourself, and how to you know, target certain audiences, and how to run great programs, and how to manage big staffs, and so on and so on. And it looks and sounds exactly what you'd find if you were if you're writing a book or holding a seminar for CEOs of big companies. It's just that we Christianize it. And there's nothing distinctive kingdom about it. Now, there can be wisdom there. I'm not saying we should ignore that practical uh, advice and whatnot. But we always have to remember the kingdom principle. That it's not about how flashy it looks and how smart it is and how wise it is and how effective it is. It's not about what you produce. It's about how you bleed. And if the leaders of churches and uh, others are not influencing people to look like Jesus in their day-to-day -day lives well then, there's nothing kingdom about it. 
The bottom line is, does it look like Calvary? Are you inspiring people to live a Calvary kind of lifestyle? In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, he says you can have the best stuff, the best religious stuff, the most impressive religious stuff, the most powerful religious stuff, speaking in tongues and understanding all mysteries and having all knowledge and so on and so on and so on. But if it's not motivated by self-sacrificial love that looks like Christ, if it doesn't produce self-sacrificial love that looks like Jesus Christ, then Paul says it's altogether worthless. It's a clanging gong, a noisy symbol. It's just religious noise. We have to always remember the kingdom principle. It's my, my impression, another area of concern is that the church seems to be as, as, as uh, inebriated with, with, with celebrities as uh, the world is. We, we, we have our own stars. Because our criteria is how much do you produce, we tend to really reverence the people who produce a lot. And so the, the people who can build the big churches and collect the big offerings and, and, and those special stars who maybe have a gift to sing in a certain way or to preach in a certain way or to write in a certain, a certain way, hold seminars in certain ways, we tend to idolize those folks, celebrities. Because we're evaluating things in terms of what people produce or how impressive it is. And that's fine. God uses specially gifted people, but we've always got to remember the Calvary principle. That it's not about how wonderful you can sing or how good you can preach or how well you can write a book or anything of the sort. It's what does it cost you to do it. Only insofar as we bleed are we actually advancing the kingdom. Otherwise, it's just a show with sort of religious trappings to it. It's my impression that to a large degree, the church is as, uh, uh, is as secular as the world in terms of sort of holding up people who make a lot of money and who can, and who can do a lot of things, quote-unquote, because of their money. In fact, in, in some of the books and seminars that uh, are written for pastors, uh, you have this explicit advice. They'll say things like, you can't do anything unless you've got a lot of money. And so find out who are the deep pocket people in the congregation and you have to spend extra time with them. You've got to schmooze them. Uh, you take them out to dinner. You go golfing with them. You build relationships with them. You've got to invest far more time in that little group of people who have got deep pockets, who've got all the money because you need them to do anything. And there's a certain obvious truth to that. You know, you, you can't do much with, without money. But what concerns me, and so it's fine to know about financial, I'm not naive about that. You need to have some financial common sense. But very quickly, we can completely lose a kingdom perspective if we're not careful. The Calvary principle is that it's not how much money you have that builds the kingdom. It's how much sacrifice is behind the giving of the money. And if that is true... That means the poorest person in your congregation might be doing more to advance the kingdom than all those wealthy people combined because they might be giving out of their surplus while this person is giving out of their survival fund. There is no place, I want to say this as clear as I can, no place in the kingdom for celebrity-itis. No place in the kingdom for superstars. It's just contrary to the very nature of the kingdom to be putting anyone up on a pedestal by to, to be eulogizing them for how blessed they are and, and how favored by God they are and look at how much good they're doing for the kingdom that's fundamentally contrary to this passage that we're looking at right now the superstars are the unknown folks the ones who give the penny when that's all they have to give but the thing is you can't measure that 
They don't get their, 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 their pictures on the cover of Time Magazine or Christianity Today or whatever. It's great to honor gifts. That's fine. Honor the gift. I appreciate that gift. I appreciate that you use it for the kingdom. That's fine. But see, in the kingdom, we've got to lock it in. That every person has an equal capacity to advance the kingdom. Because the kingdom isn't about how much you give, how much you have, how talented you, you, you are, how smart you are, uh, what kind of songs you can sing or what kind of churches you can build. It's not about anything of the sort because it's not about anything measurable. It's about how much do people bleed. And that's not just a like, nice little po poetic sort of a thing or a little analogous thing. It really is the case that the kingdom advances only insofar as there's sacrifice behind what we do. Somebody who maybe has a very mediocre voice and gets up and sings, but it costs them something to do it, and maybe it costs the congregation something to listen to it. <laughs> that can do more to advance the kingdom than the person who, out of their surplus, they just are very talented like this. They just, you know, kind of just put forth their stuff, and everyone says, oh, that's just so beautiful. Fine! Great music is wonderful. I like it. But the kingdom is something very different from that. The kingdom is not about what you produce. The kingdom is about what is the sacrifice behind it. This is also why I believe uh, Christians tend to, in our country, clamor for political power. Why, why are we so, tend to be so invested in that? Well, it's because you can measure the outcomes. It produces measurable stuff, and we trust measurable stuff. This is, this is part of the fabric of our, our American way of thinking about things. I've had... Many people tell me uh, in one way or another um, something like this. Dr. Boyd, it's really good that you encourage people to live a Jesus lifestyle. That's great. And go to church and, and to pray. We do need to pray and we do need to, you know, care about our neighbors and impact the neighborhood by how we live. That's really good. But really, really, if you really want to make a difference in this country, if you really want to take... America back for God. If you really want to change the way things are, you, you've got to do more. You've got to go to the source. You've got to go to, uh, you know, what's upstream, the pool that's feeding the river, and we all know that that's about politics. And so if you really want to change things, you really want to influence things, you really want to make the world a better place, well, you've got to grab hold of some of Caesar's power. And so we have all sorts of Christians trying to rally, leaders trying to rally all the other Christians around a particular political position or a particular uh, candidate or whatever uh, in order to vote the right way. And if you're not sure what the right way is, you just ask them because they apparently have superior wisdom about these things and they'll tell you what the right way is. Trouble is, the guy down the street or the gal down the street has a different opinion, so now the church gets divided. Clamoring for some political power. Why? Because we, be commonsensical here, we all know that that's what really makes the difference. That's what really changes things. That's what's really important. Yes, do your good works and go to church and pray, but what really changes things, well, it's grabbing hold of Caesar's power. Thank God for Caesar, because if it wasn't for Caesar, all we'd have is the cross, and we all know that the cross can't do anything. You see, that's the thinking behind it. And someone maybe even right now hearing this could be thinking to themselves, well, that's really naive. Oh, so naive. Pious, but naive. And if this strikes you as naive and foolish, well, at least you're hearing me straight. Because the Bible says it's foolish. The Bible says this is a foolish way to trust in the power of self-sacrificial love. To trust in the Calvary power rather than military power or political power or money power. That does look foolish to the world, but that's the gospel. That's the kingdom. There's something fundamentally wrong. It's fundamentally wrong when you have, 
crowds of people get together and they maybe will, will, will carry signs and march a certain way and they go to the polls and vote a certain way uh, because they really care about the poor and they really want to do something about the poor so they're going to advise Caesar what to do about the poor. And then they go back to their nice homes and nothing in their life changes. Something wrong with that. What God calls us to, what God, the only thing God's concerned with is how does it impact you? Forget your opinions about what Caesar should do. How are you living differently because of the gospel? How are you bleeding for the poor? How are you bleeding for the lost? How are you bleeding to manifest the character of God to your neighbors? The kingdom is all about that and nothing but that. And so that's what we're called to trust. So I want to end with the two questions. One is an encouraging question, and one might be a convicting question. The encouraging question is this. Can you believe that? Will you on faith take that as gospel truth? Because it is. Will you view yourself through the lens of the Calvary principle? And here's what's significant about that. A lot of Christians, indoctrinated by the thinking of the world, Look at the superstars with all the stuff that they produce. And you feel pretty insignificant compared to that. Like your life really doesn't count. You have sort of a meaningless life because you're just one of the ordinary people uh, and you're not specially gifted in any kind of way and you don't have a lot of money and you just can't make a lot of difference. And uh, so you're not like the superstars. If you're hearing this message, Jesus' teaching about the widow's penny, it collapses all all of that. Will you on faith collapse every inclination you might ever have to compare yourself with anybody? And will you on faith believe that what the world measures as the little thing that you do, believe that when you do it out of sacrifice, it really does, really does more to advance the kingdom than all the big, impressive, rich, powerful stuff that others do out of their surplus. When we invest out of our survival fund, meaning it, it impacts the way we live, we have to trust God more than we otherwise would because we're living this way, giving out of our survival fund. Will you believe that when you do that, it has more kingdom impact than the most impressive gift in the world, the most impressive deed in the world, if it's done out of surplus? Your life can mean more to the kingdom of God than what the world hails as, as, as the great hero. It may be that you're investing in this inner city youth, one, one, one person, which maybe no one else even knows about, and it looks so insignificant by world standards, but you're pouring your life out for this one kid and, and, and maybe not even seeing a lot of, uh, of difference that that's making. But you're doing it in a way that cuts into your survival fund. You have to alter your lifestyle because of this. That may be doing more to advance the kingdom on this planet than somebody who's running a global ministry for all you know. And so do what God calls you to do, but take great satisfaction in the fact that you're advancing the kingdom in powerful ways simply by the virtue of the fact that you're looking like Jesus as you invest in this youth. Or the, the ministry that you have to people with disabilities. Maybe it's not really impressive by world standards, not making a real measurable indifference by world standards. Maybe no one even knows about it. But will you believe that that is doing more to advance the kingdom than some charismatic personality who out of their surplus can pack auditoriums full of people? 
And yeah, they'll be the ones who this time around get all the accolades and all of that, and you're a nobody by the world's standards, but when you're doing it out of sacrifice, you're advancing the kingdom more than, than uh, somebody who's doing anything out of surplus. We believe that your ministry, however small it may be, is incredibly significant to the kingdom of God. This is why I encourage people. When, you know, and we're in one of these times now, this recession where things can get tough. People are getting, still getting laid off all over the place. I had a friend of mine uh, get laid off on Friday. And, 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 and the tendency is to like grab hold of everything because you don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. We hoard. You got to save up. And we, we, we go in this self-preservationist, protective sort of mindset. I really encourage you, while you probably have to cut back and be very frugal, never, never stop giving. I don't care how poor you are, never stop giving. And, and investing in others. I'm not just talking about money. But be pouring yourself out towards others, especially when things are tough. And keep on giving to the kingdom and other areas that God leads you, especially when times are tough. Maybe you can only give a quarter. But that quarter, if we're going to take this teaching seriously, that quarter may do more to advance the kingdom than the 25000 you can give when things are going well. Because the 25000 when things are going well, is done out of surplus. That quarter is your survival fund. So you're actually doing more for the kingdom when you're giving less because you have less to give. Never stop investing in the kingdom. Never stop pouring yourself out towards, towards others. Will you believe that your little gift, your penny, has incredible kingdom significance? When the kingdom has fully come on earth, I am convinced that when we see who the heroes are, we're going to be really surprised. Because it's not going to be the ones who got all the accolades here and now. In fact, Jesus tends to say, uh, teaches that, you know, verily you have your reward now. It's, it's, it, things are even more significant when people don't know about it. And when you're not getting acclaimed and, and all of that. Uh, th that widow in heaven will be a hero. A superstar. Far more so than megachurch builders. Unless the megachurch builders are doing it out of the, the kind of widow's self-sacrificial love. We, we can't know these things, so we're not in a position to judge. But what I know is that the heroes are going to be the insignificant people, the little people. Some monk in the 11th century who spent all their time praying and, and, and whatever spare time they had serving the poor, they're going to be a hero in heaven and no one ever knew about them. But God knew. So find significance and satisfaction in doing what God calls you to do and don't compare yourself with anybody. Then the convicting question is this. Very simply. Are we living like that? Are we living like that? Am I, you can only ask this personally, and then in, in with your small group and others who you've invested in, uh, am I living like that? Am I living like this? Do I bleed? It's very different than the question of what do I do that looks like kingdom? Uh, what do I do that impresses people? What do I do that people appreciate me for? That's nice, but that's not the kingdom question. The only kingdom question is, am I bleeding for the cause of Christ? Am I bleeding to look like Jesus? I, I, the question I encourage people to live in, and not just in solitude, but invite others in on this, is, is this question. How is my life different because I'm a follower of Jesus? If I wasn't a follower of Jesus, how would I live differently than I do now? How would, I how would my life look How would what I own look different? How would what I, uh, how I spend my time look different? And you're just asking the question, how is my life widow-like? How is my life pinched? 
uh, because I'm a follower of Jesus? To what degree do I give out of my survival fund for the cause of the kingdom? Not just financially, but in terms of my time, in terms of my effort. Holy Spirit, help us to be honest with that question. Not to indict us or shame us, but to begin to transform us and reprioritize our priorities so we begin to live like the widow. Not giving out of our surplus, not out of our extras, but rather out of our life, out of our blood, out of what matters most to us. I'm going to close with a word of prayer to seal this in our hearts. I want to invite the prayer team to come forward. And uh, if you're here this morning and have any need whatsoever that you'd like to have prayed for, I encourage you to come forward and receive prayer for that. It could be about this matter. It could be about anything. Uh, but come forward and pray with these folks. I close with this. Father, your ways are so different than our ways. Your way of looking at the world is so different than our ways. Teach us your ways. Help us to see what you see, to really value what you value. And what you value is self-sacrificial love. Build that into our hearts, God, with such an intensity that it confronts all the ways we've been indoctrinated and brainwashed to think otherwise. Help us to put our trust in sacrifice, not in measurable outcomes, not in what gets produced, but rather in the blood that's behind it. And God claps our inclination to hold up people on pedestals and, and look at Christian celebrities and stars and compare ourselves to them, uh, ourselves with them. God claps that so that we can find deep, profound significance and meaning and satisfaction in the penny, in the penny that we put in. We ask this in Jesus' name. And all the kingdom people said, God bless you guys. Go out and invest your pennies. <laughs>